Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homey. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show comes to you from a variety of locations in the field. Most often, we come to you from our sumptuous office balcony here in beautiful Las Vegas, the hottest city in America. But I could tune in from a park. I could tune in from a cigar shop. I could tune in from a coffee shop. Think of those times you've sat in on private mastermind conversations where it was the two of you, the three of you, and you got inspired by what the other said, and you had those oh, oh, oh moments come up as you were listening to the other person share their story or share their example, share their wisdom, their brilliance, and their passion. And think about where you were when these happened. You were possibly in a restaurant, possibly in a bar, possibly in a park, possibly an outdoor cafe. Possibly the cocktail hour after the seminar, possibly just anywhere. These conversations tend to happen in our everyday life. And since I am dedicated to the laptop lifestyle myself, I invite you on our journey. So get your pad of paper and two pens out as you prepare to capture those aha moments that will naturally arise as you listen to what we have to discuss today. Now, we are going to cover four proven passive investments. I have been told that our listeners would like to hear a little bit more about passive investments, how to create passive revenue. And regardless of what economy or what situation you're in, these opportunities are always here. And we have somebody who is in an industry that is actually somewhat commoditized, but they've created a very unique way of approaching it. So we're going to explore that and we're going to look at some additional proven passive investments. His name is Scott Crone. And just to tell you a little bit about him, he's a Chicago native whose career in architecture began in 1991 by pursuing his master's of architecture from the Illinois Institute of Technology and while obtaining his degree. He also worked as a project manager for Optima Incorporated, where his responsibilities included notable projects such as the 400 unit Cormandel in Deerfield, Illinois, the 40-unit Hedrow in Winnica, Illinois, and the 51-unit Optima Center, Wilmette in Wilmette, Illinois. And since 2012, he's been the founder of Coda Management Group, which is a firm that specializes in managing real estate assets. And this is another thing we're going to discover more about. He's also authored a book called High Performance Homes, Navigating the Green Road to Your Dream Home, which is a book for homeowners seeking to incorporate green technology into their home. Right now, Greg resides in Wilmette, Illinois, with his wife and three children. And come on in. The weather's fine. Scott, welcome aboard. Thank you very much. It's definitely, um, I'd like to be in Las Vegas right now compared to Chicago. So thanks for having me. (laughs) 
Yeah, I've got a lot of friends in Chicago, and I can uh, I can relate. Uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, it just depends on the point of view. But I think unfortunately, because I I like to see new things. The most I've seen in Chicago is the many 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 layovers in Midway because it seems every pl- flight every flight lays over in either either Midway or Atlanta for some reason, no matter where you're going. It sounds like you're a Southwester. So, um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got it. me. You got me. All <laughs> right. So what we like to do here is I read off a bit about your, your background. What I'd like to do is, and we do this with all of our guests, uh, before we dive into the content of what we're going to discuss today is tell us a bit in your own words about your journey. I read off your official bio. It's very impressive. I'm not sure if I'm worthy to be here in your presence, and this is my show. But tell us a bit, just from your own perspective, uh, some of the things that have inspired you along the way as you've arrived at your intersection of your brilliance and your passion from which you serve your community market and audience in the present day. Well, I, I thank you, one very much for that kind intro. But I, I couldn't agree with you more in terms of the, the overall premise of your show, the aha moments. Yes. I think life is full of aha moments. And, um, you know, if I, if I had to summarize my journey in, in, in one sentence, I would have to say that it's, you know, what, what has happened after those aha moments? There's been, a, you know, not just one, but quite a few of them along the lines. And um, right. for me, that, that marks, those are the, the milestones or the, or the markers, if you will, along my journey. Um, you know, the first milestone marker was, whether or not I went to um, a college, an undergraduate for architecture. And I chose not to because I wanted to play college athletics. And so, you know, I thought that that was a marker that set me on the path away from architecture. And um, the next aha moment was when my parents showed up my senior year and said, what are you going to do next year? Which I thought I was going into the family business. And they said, no, we're selling it. Um, oh, you know, boy. That, that's, that's a big aha moment, right? Yeah. And um, it was only then that my father suggested that I begin looking into master's programs, which um, had architecture. And that was, that was a brand new um, degree at that point in time. It had only been out for, uh, they, just, they just launched it, in fact. So I was like the first class to actually go through it. And um, the next aha moment was recognizing that developers are the ones who do well in the real estate market and not necessarily architects. So becoming a developer became an important desire of mine during graduate school. And then um, the next aha moment was getting connected with my professor who owned a development company, an architecture company, and a contracting company and did all three things. And really seeing how that control could benefit um, not only the consumer, but also, you know, the whole process. And so, you know, those were some milestones. And then, um, the next one was when I left that company, I went to work for another company, the former CFO of, of Optima. The, the project that I was asked to um, work on when I didn't, you know, put together the whole financial analysis for it because the, you know, they had three different chairs working on it. And my job was to make sure all the chairs were in a line. Um, the project that was going to make $3 million was going to end up losing half a million dollars. And so that allowed me to start my own company. And that was another aha moment. And then along those lines, I would say that, you know, seeing the impacts of the marketplace. So seeing like what happened with 9-11, seeing what happened with the internet um, bubble bursting. And then obviously there's a big aha moment when the whole financial banking 
institution collapsed and, and how the economy reacted and, and seeing how the, the economy in, in society reacts around the pandemic. Um, these are, you know, very specific aha moments along those lines, but in, in dispersed between those is, is obviously conversations with people. And I really believe in the, in having mentors and people that, um, have more wisdom than you. And so, you know, I, I chose to sit at a table. Um, when I say sit at a table, it was a continual table of, um, being mentored by a person who had immigrated from the, into the United States from Lebanon with less than a hundred dollars in his wallet. And, and now owns Lazy Boy and Great Harvest Bread, and is on the board of BB&T Bank, and is the president of High Point University. So for me, like those are yeah. aha moments. Just listening to the people that he would open up his Rolodex and and bring to the conversation and discussion, and and learning how they did business, and seeing how I could transform what we were doing. And in terms of being a local little shop here in Chicago into a company that is working across, you know, from the Mississippi to the Eastern seaboard. Yeah. I think that's all, all very interesting. Now, one of the things that, uh, that I'm, that you wanted to discuss was self storage investing. Now, first of all, if you could define that term, what does that mean? Self storage investing. And then how does your company do this differently from what's seen in the marketplace? And bear in mind, this may be a little bit of a new area of learning for our listeners. So if you could explain it in some detail, that would be really be helpful so we know where we are. Absolutely. So when we look at self-storage, there's really three asset classes. And we, we've equated them to uh, stock terms to help people understand them. Um, a penny stock you know, is small price, not a lot of volatility, not a lot of movement but it's going to give, give you a nice little yield on an annual basis. I'd classify that as a class C or first generation self-storage. And if you have an image of self-storage, that's probably a class C, you know, right. more out in the rural area, drive up non-climate control. Maybe it's paved, probably not. It might be gravel road. Yeah. And, um, you know, just a consistent yield. It's not going to, you know, skyrocket to the moon or anything like that. It's just going to give you a nice consistent yield. Yeah. And then what we call a blue chip stock would be um, class B, which is more suburban. Um, so a little bit larger, you know, class C might be anywhere from 50 to 200, probably at most class B would probably be 200 to 500 or 400 mm -hmm. and paved more suburban may have climate control, but it still looks like class A in the sense that, um, you know, it's a drive up type facility and there might be a gate or an automatic gate around it. And then, Class A is what we call a growth stock. So you're going to see appreciation as well as cash flow out of it. And, um, you know, greater risk, but greater return. And uh, Class A would be urban, drive-in, as opposed to drive-up, fully climate-controlled and anywhere from 500 to 1,200 units. Right. So that's a nice, that's a nice way of distinguishing all that. Because when I hear of self-storage, you're right. You typically think... It's in an industrial area. In fact, it might be on the property of a former factory. And it's got a bunch of basically steel units that are lined up with the sliding doors. And it's where you store all the furniture you're not sure you want to throw out yet, basically. <laughs> that, is, that is one description of it, yes. Um, I would say that 50% of our clients are businesses and the other 50% are homeowners. And, um, you know, people, I mean, basically where we see self-storage is 
And this is how we formed our company, One Stop Self Storage, was around the premise that self storage is a is a tool or a means to alleviate uh, challenging or difficult times, and a yeah. lot of times pain. So it could be you're going through a divorce or someone's passed away, and you know you don't have the energy or the time to put into you know, as you said, dispersing or figuring out what you're going to do with all this stuff. And so you put uh-huh. it into self-storage, but there's also displacement, you know, think about the pandemic and everyone having to go home rapidly from college and they needed to pack up their dorms and just didn't know when they were coming back. And so they stuck it all in self-storage. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, if you obviously are, if you're moving and, um, you know, if you're in the military or working abroad or someplace and you need to come back to the stuff, you don't want to just give it all up. That would be the, the next uh, area that you're that you utilize self-storage on a, on a residential, let's just say a, a, a residential marketplace as opposed to a corporate marketplace. And, um, you know, a lot of our businesses are using it for inventory, especially with um, all the supply chain issues that they're having. So if you have to go in and buy, you know, let's say 20 boxes of, uh, you know, screws or, you know, J boxes, if you're an electrician or a conduit or whatever it is that they're just piling it into self-storage so they have those resources when they need them. Yeah. And I have been hearing more about that. And it's both a reaction to and in some ways an exacerbator of the supply chain issue because there's so much fear around things being unavailable or scarce. Hey, people are buying it while the getting's good. I remember this was maybe about nine months ago. I needed an adapter so that I could plug in computer equipment that plugged in using a USB-A plug into USB-C receivers. So I was looking for A to C adapters. I had to go seven places before I found one. And when I got to the place that had them, I bought every single one I had. <laughs> I, I, can, I can envision that. I, I've seen that happen. Which is important, especially in this day and age, where more and more electronics are coming out that only have USB-C plugins. Right. The ne- one of the next steps in in the evolution of one of the, one of the one of the next steps in the evolution of technology is moving us toward USB-Cs. So I grabbed a whole bunch of them. I feel so sorry, but I did spend a week trying to find one. It's, it's understandable, but I, and the, the other side of that is controlling cost. You know, right. as as we're bidding out jobs, I mean, we're getting estimates that last a week because of how much prices are increasing. So, if an electrician or you know a plumber can fix their cost because they can buy a bunch of stuff, and then they know that they're not going to have to buy more, they can you know it makes their project more viable. Right, 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 right. Precisely. And I'm also and I'm, and I'm also aware that some of the apartment management companies right here in Las Vegas, including the one that manages the place where I live, have gotten into this act as well. They have a swimming pool here. They have not been able to fix for six months because the part needed to fix the pump is not available. Mm-hmm. It's not it's actually not them using it as an excuse to keep the pool closed to avoid COVID issues. They actually want it open, but they can't because they cannot get the parts. That's, that's the level to which this is, this is gone. So yeah, this, and I can see, and I never thought of this until you brought it up, how 
this can impact the self-storage industry, particularly when you see people stockpiling in light of these ongoing supply chain issues. We, we do have a policy that if you bring in toilet paper, you're only allowed to bring in one container of toilet paper. You can't bring in 20. <laughs> you know, I remember when the, pan, the, uh, the bugs started going around and you had these enterprising entrepreneurs who started going to every convenience store, Walmart, Costco, Target, what have you, and buying up all the sanitary wipes, all of the hand sanitizer, all of the aspirin, all the toilet paper, all the paper towels, all the paper goods, and then put it in a big, I think it was actually in either somebody's basement or might have been in a storage container, and then turn around and try to sell it on eBay for exorbitant prices and got shut down. Yeah, no, it definitely was happening for sure. And then and in the end, th this one actually made international news. And in the end, they were stuck with essentially tens of thousands of dollars worth of inventory that they had no outlet to sell. And I believe if I remember correctly, I'd have to go back and look. They ended up giving it a lot of it away. Hey, look, I understand capitalism. And I'll tell you candidly, there, if I had seen certain things coming before the bugs started floating around and it became a big crisis in March of 2020, there are a few things I probably would have built up a bit on. And yeah, I probably would have turned around and sold them. And I probably would have uh, tried to get a reasonable profit off it, but not $23 for a six ounce bottle of hand sanitizer. Yeah, it, it is a shame of, um, you know, how we responded. And, and I think that goes to the heart of why we started our own business was because our, our own self-storage product was because we were seeing those things happen in the marketplace. And we felt that we could do it better and, and have a higher level of um, response back to our customers, our clients, um, so that we can meet their needs and their goals <clears throat> without just creating a false marketplace. Does that make sense? Uh, it makes dollars and cents. So, you, uh, so, so again, what was great is you identified these three different levels of self-storage. I didn't know there were three different classes and maybe there's even more, but I am familiar with the idea that there is a self-storage place. It's right around the corner from where my residence is right now, where it's not a bunch of containers in a gravel lot, but it's a building you go into where the units are inside a building. So you're, in, you're inside for the entire experience. Yeah, that's what I was referring to, the drive-up facility. I'm yeah. sorry, the drive-in, the drive-in facility versus the drive-up. And when we work in the urban areas, the projects that we've converted from, one was the former Lincoln Log factory or another one was a medical warehouse building. Um, you literally can drive into our building. The overhead yeah. door goes down. You can leave your car unlocked, um, open, and it's a dry, safe, and secure environment. We have elevators and lifts to make sure you can get your stuff to where you need to be. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, actually, that's actually pretty interesting. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure if that particular place does that, but I have seen cases where people will get a storage container and put their vehicle in it, particularly if it's some kind of classic or uniquely valuable type vehicle, but they live in an urban environment and they don't have a garage or a place to stash it that's otherwise nearby. That would be, I would call it the next generation of self-storage where, okay. and, and I'd sort of take it out of the self-storage category because it's really logistics um, where they deliver a pod or, you know, a container to you and you fill it up or individual, you say, I want to store my tennis racket or my skis, <clears throat> excuse me, and they come pick it up. Mm -hmm. 
and they take it back and they, you know, they put it on a shelf or they put it in a, in a compartment of their building. And for me, the, inherently the difference is that now you're buying a logistics company. So now you're in the process of, of uh, distribution and controlling your, your freight and your shipping and your trucking as opposed to storage. And so it's an entirely different business model in my mind. Right. Okay. So the next thing I, next thing I was curious about is uh, what do you see are going to be the trends in this industry going on? And our listeners may be thinking, why are we talking about self-storage? But I love to feature different types of business models because it's been my discovery that you can find the innovations for your business by looking outside the container in which you're currently sitting. So I love to look at unique business models or things we don't normally think of and say the online marketing space or the online consulting space, for example. So what are some of the things that you're continuing to transform as you continue to work on them? Well, I think the first thing that, you know, people say, I understand multifamily or I understand apartments or this or that, but I don't understand self-storage. You know, inherently self-storage is the same concept. You know, we're renting space. It just happens to be a more simple space and we don't have toilets and kitchens and bathrooms. You know, our, our leases are month to month as opposed to a year. And so we don't have a lot of eviction laws. But uh -huh. when we were doing multifamily, you know, 400 units would be $100 million. We can do 400 units and it can be worth $8 million, $9 million. So it's a fraction of the cost, but it's also inherently a retail business. And because of that, it's a very, you know, it's a business that can be modeled and predicted because there are, are spending patterns and, and shopping patterns of our consumers. So for instance, there's a saturation point of how much self-storage in an area. And once you reach that, it's, it's classic supply and, and demand in terms of you go over it your prices begin to drop, your lease up expands, and you have problems. If you're underneath it, then you can get to market rate um, fairly quickly. And so that's that's one of the reasons why we like it more so than multifamily is because of the fact that we can predict the business model. And when we know when we're hitting our metrics and when we, we're not hitting our metrics. And that was one of the reasons why we're, we moved away from the major third-party vendors is because you know they would tell us it was a great market going into it, and then they would uh, come in and start managing it and their lease up would be extraordinarily slow. They increased their expenses by 40% and they weren't hitting their metrics. And they're like, oh, it's a bad market. And once we took over, we began immediately hitting all of our metrics and controlling our costs. And those are the cost savings that we can pass on to our, our client, our customers. Right. And so, um, you know, those are the things that we, we saw in the marketplace there is, you know, how we can become not only the developer, doing the, the, you know, the design work and then the build, but now also the management. So we're controlling the process from A to Z. So everything that we're doing is to make the building as most, most efficient and cost effective that we can pass it on to our clients. Great. Well, let's shift gears here. We're a little over halfway through our conversation, which is fantastic. And the next thing I wanted to discuss is passive investments. Now you shared with me that there are, in your mind, four proven passive investments. So let's start by defining our terms and what are they? Well, when, I, when passive investments are, you know, vehicles of which you are not actively managing or involved in the investment and you've contributed cash or equity to it and that you're getting a rate of return in exchange for your involvement. Correct. And so one of the things that we look at is, 
you know, we've done multifamily, we've done commercial, we've done self-storage, we've done institutional, we've done all these things, we've done single family homes. Um, so we can, we can speak to each of those elements in terms of on the real estate side of things. But one of the things that we look at beyond this, and these are some of the other factors that we put in there in terms of what really impacts passive income is not just, well, first of all, if I'm going to say one thing, it would be, if, if you're looking in real estate, you want to see what is the best way to maximize the value of the property. And so that doesn't matter if it's single family, multifamily, commercial, institutional, self-storage, mobile homes, whatever it may be, how do you maximize the value of the property? So that's our first rules. And that's where our role as a developer is coming in and saying, how can we do this? So for our commercial properties that weren't self-storage, we changed the use and converted them into self-storage so we could get a higher rental rate per square foot. We're in the process of acquiring a facility in, in Michigan right now. It's our first venture into Michigan. And we, we've noticed that the rents are you know, 60% of market value. So we can come in and just make the, this, the place more efficient. We can still be in a competitive marketplace below market rent and still increase the value of the property just by changing the rental income. You know, we can cut expenses that are not necessary and we can in increase our revenue and we can take a, you know, almost 2X the property in terms of value because we've increased the NOI. And so as a developer, our role is always to look to see how we can maximize the, the revenue of the property. The second one is controlling expenses, which is why we started One Stop Self Storage. You know, if we can control the NOI and control the expenses, you know, in multifamily, you're seeing the expenses around 55%. In self-storage, high might be 35, but if we can get them down to 25% of our, our revenue, then uh, we've also dramatically increased the value of the property. So those, those are a couple things there, but what we've also seen is we've been able to implement um, historic tax credits in order to increase the NOI for our passive investors. Uh, we did that on a project in Milwaukee. We've, um, we were the, probably the first opportunity zone in Northwest Ohio. Um, when we, I mean, the, the regulations hadn't even come out from the IRS. And so we opened up our opportunity zone for our property in, in Toledo because we discovered that our site was in an opportunity zone. And so we went to our investors and said, you know, um, does this interest anybody? And we had really no idea what it was at the time because, I mean, let's be, let's be uh, you know, perfectly clear. There's only like three quarters of a page in the, IR, in the um, tax code that described what an opportunity zone was. There was no other further regulations or documentation as to what it was. And so I was literally on the phone with the IRS multiple times just trying to ascertain how they were going to implement it, how they were going to do it, what the, what the purpose of it was, because that was, that was the greatest resource for me to go is firsthand was directly to the IRS. And so we created that. And then we've also used cost segregation. Now, the big difference between single family or, you know, let's call it, you know, homes or short-term rentals or any of things along those lines and what we're doing in terms of development is with cost segregation, we can get a forced appreciation when we acquire the property, but then the next year we can get another forced appreciation after all the improvements. And so we've created massive tax shelters between the opportunity zones, historic tax credits, and the cost segregation for our, our passive investors, which mm -hmm. we don't build into the rate of return, but dramatically enhance the rate of return for them because of the fact that they're not having to pay taxes in other areas of their, of their gains. Yeah. You spoke with the IRS? 
Twice. Yeah. On I the phone? Them up. Yeah. It was really funny. I, I, you know, it says if you have questions on opportunity zones, you know, call this number. And so I called it and it was like a 1-800 number. And, and, and it was like, if you'd like to talk to someone about opportunity zones, please leave a message. Beep. Uh-huh. And so, um, I then, you know, left a message and, you know, waited and two or three days later, I get a, a call from a 414 area code and we have a facility in, in Wisconsin in the 414 area code. So I wasn't sure if, what it was. And so I was in a meeting and I let it go to a voicemail and it was like, this is Joanne from the IRS return your call from about opportunity zones. Please call back. <laughs> so wow. I, so I called back immediately. And I, of course I got the, this is the, the IRS. If you'd like to leave a message, please do set the beep. And so I left another message. And of course, two days later I get, I'm in another meeting and I see 414 pop up on my phone. I'm like, I got to take this call. I'm sorry. Yeah. I got to get out of this meeting. <laughs> and so I, I was on the phone with her for about an hour and a half and just trying to learn how they were going to do it. And of course they couldn't tell me exactly because they didn't know. I mean, they were, they yeah. were literally saying, you know, we're going to propose these rules and regulations, but we don't have anything definitive at this point in time. But if you sort of hit it down the middle of the fairway, you should be good. And, uh, you know, just told us like how to structure these things to make sure that we were going to be in compliance. And, uh, and I called up our attorney and spoke with them about it. And then they had more questions. So I had to call the IRS a third time and, um, you know, try to get some more answers. And then, you know, that's how we set it up. And so our first opportunity mm-hmm. zone, I mean, it wasn't big. I mean, it was, you know, quarter of a million dollars, but, you know, for those three investors that did that, we did that for them. We did it for free for them. We didn't charge them anything extra for it. We just did because it's a value to our investors. You know, they, they wanted it. And so that's something that we did on for their benefit. Right. Awesome. Awesome. So what I, I guess, you know, what I'm also wondering about here is now that we see that there are some different ways you can create these passive investments, I know one of the takeaways you mentioned from last year or the year that just passed is how supply chain issues have impacted the self-storage industry. What else have you seen and what else do you think from your unique perspective we should be on the lookout for? Well, I think the way in which people use their homes has vastly changed. Okay. Um, It's a temporary school. It is a gym. It can be a mobile office. It could be an art studio. It could be whatever it is. And so there's a, there's a bigger restriction and space space has become a more valuable asset. And not everybody has either one, the desire or two, the means to, you know, change those things. Um, you know, people are having to adjust. And one of the ways in which to ease that pain, ease that transition is through uh, self-storage. So they're, you know, the way in which we use our homes is altering how much more people need self-storage. The second part we've already touched on in terms of uh, commercial enterprises, in terms of trying to control costs, trying to control supply chain, trying to, you know, manage their own environment as best as possible. And so they uh-huh. don't have the space for a big warehouse, but they might need 200 extra square feet or 300 extra square feet in terms of managing their business. These are the most major ways in which we've seen people alter their, their patterns of operations or, or living in terms of how it's impacted self-storage. And it's been happening across a, a national trend. Um, one of the things that I went back and when I first started getting into self-storage in 2013, I went back and studied how self-storage responded in recessionary markets. 
And we looked at the oil crisis. We looked at the internet crisis. We looked at uh, the housing market crisis and then pandemic. And, uh, you know, honestly, the pandemic technically wasn't a recession. It was only one quarter of negative, I mean, like really one month of negatory downward trend. Um, But in each of those cases, self-storage had a slight dip and then exploded upward. And it it stayed above 90% occupancy. And so that was one of the things that really appeals to us in terms of that. And and right now we're seeing in the post-pandemic era that um, self-storage is maintaining its level of occupancy and it's beginning to increase across the country again. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we have a couple extra minutes here. And, you know, you seem like a pretty dynamic and diverse individual just in terms of your background and how you've applied so many different skill sets, brilliances, and passions to creating what you've done for yourself. So I have a couple things. I just want to go in a couple different directions here in the few minutes we have left here. First of all, you uh, are the author of a book called High Performance Homes, Navigating the Green Road to Your Dream Home. Now, what, what do you find is the simplest way to live that kind of green lifestyle? Because I try to do it, but it's not always as <laughs> easy as one would think. I, I mean, I'm, I'm both essentialist and minimalist, so I don't have a lot of stuff. In fact, I get annoyed when people give me gifts that they haven't cleared with me first or that show that they didn't really take the time to figure out what would be practical for me. So you want to give me something practical? I'll, I'll declare this for the whole world. Buy me a cigar. I'll use that sucker. <laughs> but, I, but I already have, but yes, I know. I have two domestic panthers, these two little, these two little black cats named Alessandra and Stella. Yes, I know that if I have a drink next to my laptop, they may knock it over, which is why I have, seal, I have sealable hot and cold drinking containers. I already have them. I don't need any more. Uh, oh, yeah, cigars and pens because I have cats. Pens disappear all the time. So if you want to get into my heart, real, oh, cat toys. They love toys. So it's those three things. But yeah, seriously. Now, okay, so, so, so now with that being said, essentialism and minimalism, I, I, I live it to the hilt. Because if you don't, because if I get something that's not practical, what's ultimately going to happen is it's going to be put in a cupboard somewhere where it's not going to have a long lifespan because I recognize that if you think that you're going to use something more by packing it in a box and sticking it in the back of your closet, that's not going to work. So yeah, it ultimately we, ends up in the landfill, right? Exactly, exactly. So I just kind of, I, I just save time. Uh, so with that little rant out of the way, uh, what can all of us do to achieve more green in our homes? Well, I think when when it first when green first started coming out, people were like, well, I'll change my light bulbs. Right. Okay. Well, that is that is very important. I mean, there are the light bulbs now. I mean, when we built our greenhouse in 20, 2008 and you know it's now 2020 22 now so 12 years later or actually 14 years later I, sh- I should say um i still haven't changed some of the light bulbs in my house and yeah. then you know light bulbs that we use every day i mean granted we don't use them all day but you know that lifespan of a light bulb is pretty incredible and the technology since then has also improved in terms of you know led and all those sorts of things yeah. So, I mean, that, that's obviously the easy thing. 
But I think that, you know, when people ask me, like, what can I do to make my house green? You know, obviously, your, your minimalism is one of the foundational components of, you know, LEED certification or any green certification is, you know, trying to reduce waste, trying to reduce landfill and things that are not necessary. That doesn't mean you have to, you know, have one chair in your house and, you know, one fork and one knife, like in the movie, The Accountant, where he has like the five five <laughs> shirts, right? Right. Um, but I think if we can cut back in terms of the non-essentials, in terms of looking at waste. And when we, we wrote the book, because we would ask people like, do you want to incorporate green into their homes? The common response was, well, you know, I don't, I don't want to do that. I can't afford it. But then they would want to go and spend like a hundred grand on their entertainment system. Yeah. And, our, and we were doing a lot of green design before it really came into vogue because we were looking at solar orientation. We were looking at, you know, how to control the light. Um, you know, for instance, in, in Las Vegas, you know, controlling how much heat gain you get is almost more important than controlling your cooling because of the fact that if you can cut down the heat gain into your, your residence, then you don't have to work as hard to cool it off. Um, yeah. But a lot of those concepts were not coming, you know, were not originally known or out there. So it's a lot different if you have an existing home versus if you're building a home. If you're building a home, look at solar orientation, look how you can control the sunlight throughout, you know, like for us, we take down solar shades during the winter because we want the sun to heat up the house during the day. And yes. then during the summer, we put them up to block the heat coming into the house. Right. So, you know, we have, um, you know, nine foot high by nine foot wide windows in a lot of our living spaces. And we use the solar shades to control those. So that that's one easy thing. I mean, those solar shades cost me like $200 a solar shade. Right. Um, but a lot of, another thing is looking at, you know, insulation, you know, one one person said to me, if I had to do one thing, to make my house green, should I put on solar panels? And we're in Chicago. I'm like, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy solar panels. I would insulate your home differently. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, pull the insulation out of your attic and put in foam insulation. And I guarantee you're, you'll cut your heating bill and your cooling bill by 20%. And right. they're, like, they're like that much. And I'm like, I guarantee you. And if you're going to do one thing, look at that. And it's not the sexy things, but it's the important things to do is because a lot of heat loss, a lot of gain is through your envelope. And if you can control your envelope, then you're much better off. Yeah. So we, you know, we could look at the things that cost more money and, you know, you, you save in terms of operational cost. And then you can, we can also look at the things that don't cost anymore, but don't save you in operational expenses. So for instance, we have bamboo floors, bamboo floors are, you know, highly sustainable because of how fast the bamboo grows compared to Oak or cherry or maple, and we stained them to look like walnut. Wow. And, uh, you know, so it's, you know, we have a very tight grain, you know, it might not have the exact same grain pattern, but it's a dark walnut looking color in our home. And, you know, people are surprised when we tell them it's bamboo. So, you know, that we don't get any points for, you know, cutting down our electric bill because of that, but we got points because it's, you know, a more sustainable material. So we look at all those different things in terms of how to do it. And it's where your value systems are. And that's what we, we wrote the book about is how to align your value systems with green options that are out there that people are not aware of. And, you know, there's, there's no one way to build a green home or have a green project, um, but it's a matter of what's, what are your priorities? Right, 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 right. So this makes me think of something. Uh, I saw an article not too long ago, and this is something that, I've been thinking about for a while is 
let me tell you from a, a personal perspective. You know how in traditional times when somebody in the family, like a grandparent or a parent dies, and uh, there's nobody else living in the house, the survivors will go through the house and pick out the stuff they want and take it with them. Or it'll be determined by a will or something like that. So I have the situation where I have not only my parents, but another family member who have wanted me to go through their house and earmark all the stuff that I want from the house after they go. And I say, I don't want any of it. <laughs> I don't have any interest in any of this stuff whatsoever. You should you take got it this, and put it in a self-storage yeah, unit. That's what this, you should do. Well, here, well here, <laughs> that, that's actually halfway where I'm going with it. So, yeah. So I say, I say, I, I don't want any of this. Now, if there's, if it's an issue of share and share alike to determine disbursement of ish, of interests or what have you per a last will and testament, then I, I mean, I don't even want to have to deal with this stuff to sell it. I have no interest in it. So if the other people in the share and share alike want to just give me the money and keep it for themselves, that's fine. Otherwise, give it to me and it'll probably be landfill. I like whatever. Just have them pick their half or their third, or you know, depending on how many are under the share and share alike, and just give me what's left. And I'll I'll find a way to, I don't know, maybe turn it into a cat house or something if the wood is sturdy enough. I don't know. <laughs> but the reason I bring this up is aside from my own minimalism and essentialism, this is becoming a trend where the newer generations that are coming up don't care so much about family heirlooms. It's like, cool, that was your family. I, I don't need that to maintain my memories. I, I don't need to have that piece of furniture that's been in the family for four generations and has actually been used as a lampstand. I don't need it for myself, and I don't want it. I'm wondering, and it's funny you brought this up because this is actually seriously where I was going, if there's a correlation between green housing, the impact of minimalism and essentialism in the self-storage industry. Oh, for sure. I think that, um, for lack of a better term, let's just call it the millennial generation. And I'm not trying to stereotype by saying this, but let's just yeah. talk, you know, not Gen X. People are choosing to live in smaller residences or apartments or whatever it may be. And they don't have the space and they're recognizing as their lifestyle grows, you know, and, you know, I, we were moving every two years because we were flipping homes. So we, we uh -huh. kept a, a lean lifestyle. And if we didn't unpack the box in those two years, then the next time that box just got tossed. So believe me, I, I can appreciate where you're coming from. <clears throat> but along those lines is that if people are choosing to live in smaller homes, but as they grow and their family grows and they have these things that cause you to buy more stuff called kids. And they go through life stages right. and changes. Um, you you do need more space, and and self storage is a, is a viable option for an alternative and and how you live in your home. So I definitely think there is a correlation between those two things, um, because ultimately, it is more economical to rent a fifty square foot space than buy a bigger apartment or a bigger home. Right, right. I. I, I think that uh, you make a lot of good points there. So finally, in the last few minutes, let's get to know a little bit more about Scott as an individual. And just uh, share with us a few insights about, uh, you know, how you 
like to live a full life and how you've managed to achieve so many things. Uh, you know, you mentioned in the green room that there are a few tips that experts swear by that have helped you. And I just wanted to get you to, if possible, share a few of those with our audience. Well, I think it's no secret that, you know, a lot of people promote getting up early and getting off to a good start in the day is, is more beneficial than, than not doing those things. So, I mean, right. I, I begin my day at five 30, uh, you know, every day yeah. we're up at um, five 30. And unfortunately I, I live three blocks from a, a nice body of water where we walk it 12 months of the year. Um, and I've paddle boarded 11 months of the year. And, um, which is a quite a big accomplishment in Chicago. I haven't hit December. Uh, I almost did it this December. Um, it was a little too cold and that's what kept me from doing it. But, um, the beginning of that day is, especially when I can get on the paddleboard and, and have that quiet time to myself of just being alone in my thoughts and not having any distractions. Obviously it's hard to have, you know, get phones or, you know, I don't want to take a phone out on a paddleboard, but that period of time allows my mind to reset, um, refocus and really get clarity in terms of what we're doing. Yeah. Um, you know, another one is I am a heavy believer in our family and, and making sure that we are each, um, pursuing what we want to do and how we want to do it. And so, you know, my kids are, are all three going in different directions in terms of their interest, but we've always encouraged them to, to pursue what they want to do and to pursue it with excellence. And it doesn't matter what that is, but we want them to learn how to do that so that they can learn how to um, succeed and more importantly, how to fail. And I think a lot of times in today's society, um, we're afraid to fail. And I think failure, you, you learn more through failure than you do through success. As my right. mentor said, anyone can win the lottery and be success. That's not success. Success is sustained winnings and through good times as well. And more importantly, through bad times and how do you adjust and how you, you manage to overcome those challenges. And so that's why we, we, we drove our kids to really focus on one or two or three things in their lives in order to learn how to, you know, to work hard at something. And I think in today's society, we don't, there's a lot of that that doesn't want to feel pain. Um, I don't think pain is a bad thing. I think pain can be a good thing um, because it, it teaches you how to become better, um, how to do things differently. I was, you know, I had a pain in my elbow and my doctor's like, yeah, I'm not going to give you anything because when you're experiencing pain, you know, you, it's telling you not to do that, do something yeah. different. And you know, I'm like, okay, well, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, that was a little bit of an aha moment there, you know? So, um, you know, I've, how I move, how I operate, how I do things that, you know, I've altered it to, to minimize it, to strengthen my arm. So I don't have that pain. Um, those are, you know, some of the things that we focus in on. Um, and then, you know, I always believe in, um, in seeking out people that do things better than you. And, you know, granted, I, I'm the founder of my company, but I, you know, I'll say to the guys that I work with, you know, this is an area I need to improve upon. You know, this is where I'm focusing on this, this, you know, I'm in part of a two-year program about transformation, about leadership. And I told them, I said, you know, every quarter I'm going to be gone Sunday afternoon through Tuesday afternoon. And I'm doing this in order to improve our company. But I'll, I'll look at different areas and say, okay, who can we seek out? Who should we, you know, talk to? How do we improve this area? Because we want to do this better. This is, this is an area of blind spot in our business and we want to make sure we're doing things better. And so I'm not afraid to ask those hard questions of, you know, 
how can I improve? And I think, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, I, I got a, something today was about a humble pride. I'm like, that's really a contradiction in terms of you can't be humble about your, your pride. Um, there is no such thing in my mind. <laughs> yeah. so it, it's a disguise of trying to say that I'm not prideful, but in fact, you're by saying that you are. So I'm not going to be the person who says I, I can't improve. I, I will always be looking to improve. Wow. That's, that, that's a really great share. And I really appreciate that. So we are pretty much at the top of the hour at this point. And I just wanted to, for anybody who is at this point, leaning in and tuning in and wanting to discover more and would like to engage more with Scott Crone, Scott, how can people contact you and what do they, what do they have to look forward to when they do? Adam, thanks for doing that. I appreciate it. If, if people would like to learn more about it, um, they can reach out to us. We're at um, www.coda, C-O-D-A, yep. Amazon Management, G is in group.com. So that's codamg.com. Uh, you can also see us at onestopselfstorage.com. But if you, if you email us at info at codamg.com, um, and you want to learn more about self-storage, we will send you what we, every time we do a new project, we hire and we retain a feasibility report that tells us the market statistics about that area by, you know, when we talk an area, we're talking in a three mile radius of our, the property that we're interested in. And we, we can send you this, you know, report that we hire that we paid for. It's about 175 pages. If you're having trouble sleeping at night, I suggest maybe reading this. It will definitely put you to sleep if you're, mm-hmm. <laughs> but more importantly, I joke about that. It is a great summary of the market overall. There's the market overall, and then why we specifically have honed in on this specific area. And it's a great learning tool for anybody who's interested in self-storage. So if that is something that interests you, just email, say, hey, I, I was listening to Adam's podcast and you mentioned the free, um, feasibility report. We'll, we'll send it to you. No questions asked. If you, if you have questions, we'd be more than happy to answer them, but there's no obligations. We'll, you know, just email us and we'll, we'll get it off to you. All right. Well, fantastic. Well, Scott, thank you for so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me in education. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.